we're back. We're finally, finally back. Rejoice, cease tearing of your hair, weeping and gnashing of your teeth. Radio Moorpork is back. Uh, there is definite gnashing of teeth. I, I, feel like, I would hope so, yeah. yeah I, I would, my my uh, hope for this podcast is that we develop a, a following where our absence is gnash-worthy. Yes, and yeah. it's definitely already happened. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> listeners, if any of you have gnashed your teeth in our absence, please let us know. It would do wonders for my ego. Mm. It would, frankly, legitimize this entire endeavor. Um, <laughs> if this is your first time listening and you're, this isn't a podcast on dentistry, it's a podcast on Terry <laughs> Pratchett's Discworld. I'm Colin Cairns, joined as always by Rose Fortune. Um, and we're, we're sorry we haven't done one of these in quite a while, but a little thing called Christmas happened, and that sort of threw our whole uh, our whole schedule out of whack. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're back to talk about cards, cards. So hooray! So before we we launch into it proper, I'll just uh, reacquaint you with the uh, with the plot of the book quite quickly, in case you haven't read it in a while. Um, if you haven't read it at all, here here be spoilers. Guards Guards follows a nefarious plot by a secret society to summon a dragon to Ankh-Morpork. The idea is to create an ideal scenario for a missing heir to the throne to appear, slay the dragon, and be welcomed as king. However, they haven't counted on the night on the night watch. Nobby Nobs, Fred Colon, Carrot Iron Thunderson, and of course their captain Sam Vimes. The society manages to summon a dragon from another dimension where dragons lie. It appears a few times, each time causing some kind of damage to property or people. Vime starts investigating the dragon's appearances, which leads him to meeting Sybil Ramkin, a breeder of swamp dragons. Sybil gives a small, underdeveloped dragon named Errol to the watch as a mascot. However, the secret society's plot backfires when a new king arrives, apparently slays the dragon... But his coronation is short-lived when the dragon returns and, uh, angry at the presumption of controlling and summoning it, quickly assumes the position of king itself. So the dragon soon wants sacrificial virgins and big piles of gold, as dragons tend to do, and the city selects uh, Sybil as the first virgin to be sacrificed. Errol the Swamp Dragon reorganises his digestive system to form a propulsion engine so he can fly in spite of his stubby little wings. And he fights the Dragon King, eventually knocking the King out of the sky. Kara tries to arrest the Dragon, but Errol lets it escape. It turns out the Dragon is a female, and the battle was not but a courtship ritual. Um, Vimes arrests Lupine once, who is the man behind the Dragon Plot and assistant to the patrician of the city, Lord Veterinary. Uh, once dies from a fall when Vimes tells Kara to throw the book at him, forgetting that Kara doesn't understand metaphors, having grown up in a dwarf mine. Um, the book incidentally was uh, the book once was trying to use to summon another dragon um, thereafter the patrician is reinstated as ruler of Ankh-Morpork and offers to watch anything they want as a reward for quote unquote saving the city they ask for a modest pay rise a new tea kettle and a new dartboard Vimes and Sybil try having a date and Vimes thinks that he couldn't do better and she couldn't do worse and well, they live pretty much happily ever after, uh, barring a few ups and downs as the series progresses. But that's all ahead of us right now. We are here to talk only about Guards Guards, and that was Guards Guards in a nutshell. Um, so, uh, full disclosure here for me, it's actually been about probably more than a month since I read this. I, I read it quite <laughs> hot in the heels of after we had done Pyramids, um, and then we just, uh, yeah, one thing led to another, and we never got around to um, recording an episode. But uh, it should be pretty pretty prominent in my head because it was one of the four Terry Pratchett books that made up my um, master's thesis 
so I should know a lot about it. I should. <laughs> you probably know more okay. thoroughly than I uh, do. You 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 reread it more recently, didn't didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, what what did you think? What were your first your your main big takeaways from from Guards Guards? The biggest takeaway is I love Guards Guards. Okay. I mean, I absolutely love this book so much. I kind of um, it must have been one of the earlier Terry Pratchett novels I read mm-hmm. because I didn't have these specific memories. Like when I was reading it again, it was like I was reading it new altogether which I can't imagine how that even happened because I love it so much that surely it should I shouldn't have forgotten anything yeah I this should just all be engraved in my head I'd forgotten about the dragons a bit like I obviously remembered Errol I've actually got a stuffed Errol <laughs> so I see it's <laughs> keeping Catbus company over there yes that's a good shelf um but I'd forgotten a kind of about the dragon I'd definitely forgotten that the dragon was a female yeah so when I got to the end I was like oh really okay totally new and I forgot how good Fred Colin and Nobby Nobs are together so <laughs> yeah. re- reading the guards again the introduction to the guards when the first um, the first Terry Pratchett novel I actually read was Nightwatch so the first book wow, I read was yeah, a guards yeah. novel but much later in the series so here's their introduction here's where they come in for the first time and they are amazing yeah right from the get go this this is something I'm curious about actually because um, you you were saying you were kind of surprised you hadn't you it been so long since you had gone back and revisited. Mm-hmm. Do do you find thinking of it now that because the watch develops so much as as like from this book onwards, you know they begin they're this raggle taggle bunch of misfits that no one respects or has much of a use for, mm-hmm. and they build up and up until they're you know this huge diverse crowd that are kind of a formidable and prestigious force in the city. Um. Did you do you feel like like part of the reason you didn't go back and read it is because you almost get so used to the to the new watch like you know them being bigger and prestigious and you know a, a force to be reckoned with that you, it almost like it feels very odd to go back and read about them when they're when they're not. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that kind of makes sense because it's it's really odd reading a guard's book where you don't have and slight spoilers, but where you don't have the troll around or the yeah, dwarf yeah. you know or you don't have the massive cast where you don't have Angua mm-hmm. like it's very odd reading a guards novel that only has four guards in it yeah so that that might be why I didn't go back and reread it but if that's it then I've just obviously really misjudged the situation <laughs> <laughs> because I was really missing out this is one of my favourite Terry Pratchett novels and it's been so long since I went near it uh, have you got any favourite quotes you want to hit us with I have about ten. I <laughs> okay. stopped. I stopped taking notes. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite jokes in it was um, the dwarves when they were writing a letter to uh, to get uh, to oh, get yeah. uh, to get carried into the night watch. They spent ages, and everybody stopped and put down their tools and went to write this letter, and it was a big communal effort. And then somebody went down to the village to ask Miss, Mistress Garlet the witch. Mistress Garlic, the witch, yeah. how, to, how to stop spelling recommendation. <laughs> Not how to spell it, how to stop spelling. <laughs> and I suddenly understand that. It's like, so you must have like six N's and two T's. And, no, no this, this is too long. This, this can't be it. And anything about Carrot really was very funny. Uh, he's talking about how uneventful his journey to Angmore Fork is. And, so, and somebody comments, or it's just an authorial note. That, oh yes, well, carrots the kind carrots a uh, dwarf raised, but he's six foot six apparently. <laughs> In sense, oh yeah, but carrot, carrot wouldn't have any trouble on this kind of journey. 
people jump out at people like them from behind rocks and say things like, oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. <laughs> someone smaller. <laughs> Jumping out from behind a rock to yeah. pass somebody and go, sorry. Yes. Uh, I really liked all the descriptions of the Dread Portal door. Mm-hmm. But there were too many, so I've just put Dread Portal door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that long exchange at the start with the uh, the passwords, and then he realizes he's <laughs> he's got the wrong secret society. Only by the time he gets to the like the whatever like twelfth response and the little like password duologue. Yes, and you gotta wonder why those passwords aren't more unique. <laughs> How can you have get gotten that far in? How could they be exactly the same up until that point? Well, maybe there's a starters kit for secret societies and they happen to buy the same one, you know? Must be it, yeah. yeah. They're working off the same template. Yeah, maybe, I mean, this is, uh, like, now how the joke is, you have you have people, like, very naively, say, making their password for their computer a password or, or, like, their name followed by just, you know, one, two, three or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe this was the secret society equivalent of, like... <laughs> Most the most obvious secret society password is something like the caged way longs for the deep or yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. That in Ankmore Pork turns makes complete <laughs> yeah. sense. Yeah, I get that. That's, um that's exactly it. It's interesting with with Carol here that uh like this book it gets a lot of comedy and, and a lot of sort of I suppose the the plot and the teams that are contrasting him with the others of his naivety like how you know he, he sleeps in a brothel and doesn't seem to realise what's going on and he tries to arrest the dragon and arrest the head of the thieves guild and I think it's really interesting and we'll probably talk more about this when we get to the likes of Men in Arms and Feet of Clay and so on that Pratchett manages to develop him where he gets more used to the city but he doesn't really get any as, as sort of as cynical or as sceptical as you know Vimes or even Nobby or Colon are yeah um, and, and I think that's good. Like even by I, I believe like uh, Men at Arms opens with him catching an unlicensed thief and having to explain to Angua about the, how the whole thing works, which is in marked contrast to his you know first appearances here. <laughs> uh, but it kind of made me uh, like even though it would be impossible to prolong, miss that naivety because there's just such fodder for comedy there. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize as well that that made such a big impression on me. That uh, again, similar to you, I don't think I like when I read Garrett's Guard, reread Garrett's Guards for this. I feel like it had been the first time in a long while, and I kind of realized that that like those incidents, like the arresting the dragon and arresting the head of the Thieves Guild, made such a big impression that I really considered these like big central moments of Carrot or moments of some Carrot up, but really they're kind of very particular to the young Carrot, and you know he'll change a lot in some way, like you know a lot in some ways, and get more experienced and. Um, uh, who knows perhaps perhaps more kind of cynical and manipulative as well it's a whole other kind of fan theory the uh, whole probably I think it's fifth elephant for that uh, there's there's some kind of fuel for that idea so we'll discuss that then and there mm-hmm. but um, but yeah he, he changed a lot but yet these incidents had made such a big impression on me I kind of like really strongly associated them with him even though it's just the kind of they really could only happen in this book yeah yeah that makes sense he kind of always sounds the same. Mm-hmm. His tone doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. Which is nice. Yeah, okay. Even a few books later, he still thinks he's a dwarf, or at least like has really strong ties back to his dwarvish roots. Like so far as eating dwarvish bread, which nobody can believe because dwarvish bread is can be used to <laughs> yeah. 
Oh god, I can't remember what it's used. It, is it in a, is it in Witch's Frog where they say it just keeps you going? You don't eat it. Like you just, <laughs> you just take it out and stare at it, and then realize there's so many other things you could eat. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. It's, it's a psychological uh, assist, really. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a line in uh, Arthur Miller's All My Sons where one of the characters accuses the other character of um, talking like a civics uh, like a civics book. Mm-hmm. After he says, uh, you know, the, the one guy doesn't want his son to become a doctor, and the guy goes, you know, it's it's an honourable profession. Goes, Would you stop talking like a civics book? Um, and I feel like Carrot is, you know, he talks like a civics book, but the difference is people believe him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually gets commented on where, when Fred and Nobby are like, have you noticed he keeps persuading us to follow him? <laughs> and it's dire situations. and It's stuff that they would never otherwise do. And they keep getting persuaded to follow this guy and do the right thing and enact more pork. That's almost suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're six foot six and have barrels of charisma, as it well, turns out. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Mm. I'm actually surprised by how charismatic he seems to be. Because he seems like he should have no charisma. Yeah. I don't know why. It's just maybe because he's so deadpan and so pleasant and so nice and so, like, takes everything literally. Things like that. I always kind of felt like since stuff goes over his head and everything I couldn't understand how he could possibly be charismatic yeah yeah I understand the six foot six and I understand how <laughs> he can come out top in a bar brawl even at the is it the broken drum yeah Meditrum. Meditrum. yes but I can't understand <laughs> how he can persuade people to follow him into veritable danger well um I know that uh Pratchett like obviously he plays a he's a you know plays the role of the kind of typical fantasy hero like the the scion of a you know for like of a deposed king who's like full of charisma and has a magical sword and Pratchett said that he initially like Carrot was initially going to be the main character in the watch books and he just he, he sort of found it a bit like hard to write inside the head of someone with a, such a pure and naive view mm-hmm. so he had volumes just kind of as a vehicle to describe the plot through and then volumes sort of became the you know really became the main character of the watch series through that mm-hmm. but I, I feel like the whole Carrot like you know, Carrot's almost like a Mary Sue or Gary Stu character in a lot of ways. Like, you know, he's absolutely perfect. And I feel like it only really works because he's not the main character and mm. he's surrounded by all these, you know, other very flawed characters. And also because of the fact that they, particularly as the thing goes on, they acknowledge and, you know, lampshade his, um, like, his, his perfection. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, you're not kind of left thinking that it's just clumsy writing like it, it, you know he very much foregrounds that it's intentional and it almost becomes like this really interesting exploration of the classic kind of fairy tale like you know paragon uh rather than just a you know dull gary stew type character <laughs> yeah also that's the first time i've ever heard the phrase gary stew <laughs> I, I knew mary sue i didn't know that there was a name yeah well i didn't want i didn't want to just gender it you know i mean uh i i, I believe it it was first used to I think describe like um, specifically for like Star Trek fan fiction maybe one thing in particular where it would be like this you know dashing young like you know new member of the, the Enterprise who like mm. you know wows Kirk and beats Spock at Logic and is a better doctor than McCoy and it was always like you know I usually well not always usually in those cases like a you know female author writing this idealized version of herself but uh, there definitely are Gary Stews out there you know <laughs> there's, know. there's a lot of them uh I wrote a I wrote a fun 
well, I thought I had fun writing a parody <laughs> of okay. um, of like a, a Game of Thrones fan fiction with uh, Gary Stu, kind of author insert character, who just <laughs> comes along and sort of completely derails the plot. Um, but anyhow, what, what you, when you mentioned Mistress Garlic, there's a couple of references in here to the wider Discworld. We get that. We get the mention of when when Vimes gets sacked. Sybil mentions that the, the Duke and Duchess of Stohelith, a I lovely know, young I couple. There, yeah, yeah. That's that's reference to Mort. And then in a in a really long one, you have Veterinary's aunt referenced multiple times when they're talking about the the, the heroes or you know lining up to kill the dragon, and they're sort of playing off the you know. Um, Again, like fairy tales and legends, and saying, "Oh, the usual thing is half the kingdom and his daughter's hand in marriage," and mm-hmm. keeps saying, "Oh, he doesn't have a daughter; he has an aunt in Genoa," and she, of course, comes into it in Night Nightwatch. Oh, I look forward to that. I do remember his aunt somewhat. Um, she's what's her name? Uh, Madam. I can't. I can't remember. Like she, she actually has like a name, but uh, it's right. Is it? Is it Madam? Most people call me Madam. I can't remember. People know who I'm talking about anyway. Pets yeah. a flatulent cat. I do remember her. <laughs> <laughs> and there was another one. Um, I actually made note of this because... Uh, oh, yes. Insurance comes up. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody remembers how insurance started. but And I can't remember how the industry is used because it's used in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's probably gambling now instead of um, you know betting somebody that their property won't catch on fire. Yeah. But insurance comes up. I've got insurance, I've got Miss Garlic... <laughs> And I've got Joker Stohelis. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's sort of it. It um, it follows on from like uh, pyramids and having Ang- uh, well, Ang Morpork features a lot less prominently in pyramids, but it's there. Mm-hmm. But in sort of tying it into the wider world of the Discworld, like Gareth's Garth is uh, cited by a lot of people as the point where like the kind of I don't want to say the proper Discworld, but kind of the Discworld as we know it begins. Yeah, where Ang Morpork stops becoming just this fantasy stereotype city and becomes an almost like kind of like a Victorian London steampunk-esque place where Pratchett can riff on you know various like social and kind of cultural developments and things mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah it's interesting that like you've had the insurance thing which ties this Ankh-Morpork back to the Ankh-Morpork of Colour of Magic mm-hmm. but so it's in Colour of Magic um, and, and in Life Fantastic but it's it's almost sits in isolation you know it's just like it's, it's kind of the parts of the plot that happen in Ankh-Morpork aren't really related to the wider world. Well, like, obviously in, you know, Life Fantastic, it's where the climax happens. But what I mean is you don't get any sense of when they're dashing around the place everywhere else that um, that anyone outside of Ankh-Morpork is really aware of it or what kind of impact the city has or influence or, you know, what people think of it. And you get a bit of it in um, Equal Rights with the sense of, like, it's kind of the centre of things you know and you just go there and a little bit in Weird Sisters um, but it's, it's sort of been steadily building where Ankh-Morpork is like almost like the centre of the disc world in a lot of ways and um, it's this like, like you know um, actual living breeding city where the stuff that happens in Ankh-Morpork will affect the wider world and you get the sense of it like in this wider world rather than just being a kind of enclosed area in itself where perhaps you can just like you know, play off sword and sorcery cliches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I do think that this is the first uh, the first book that feels like a kind of a unified disc world. Mm-hmm. Like so far, you've had, a f- like you say, a few dimension more pork, but a, f- a quite a few sort of almost feel like standalones, like entirely different locations, entirely different characters, and they're all going to 
a lot of them are going to crop up again later but for mm -hmm. the time being so early in the Discworld series they just feel like they're entirely separate kettles of fish altogether and, yeah. and then suddenly you've got this book that's referencing this, this, this and suddenly you feel like they're all going to come up again suddenly you feel like oh these characters are still yeah, there and yeah, they link back yeah, to it this. feels really lived in it doesn't just feel like, like people are kind of appearing to further the further the plot or anything they feel like they have a, a past and a future yes and we'll certainly see that a lot of them do have a future exactly um although with uh speaking past it's interesting given that like even though this does develop you know um uh really this is followed on really directly in men at arms you know like it, it kind of doesn't occupy this sort of almost um misty weird space and continuity in the like that some of the earlier books do mm -hmm. but uh you do have some things like like the stuff that is started about like vimes being brung low by a woman which yeah. is uh like i, I love that it's not got blues song like <laughs> woman brung me low yeah. um but you never get that again uh you know like this is uh it's it's like obviously a playoff kind of film noir and femme fatale and you know like the kind of um like embittered cynical detective who like you know, lost his lost his sort of his ideals and his optimism, and some love affair gone wrong. Mm -hmm. But you never really find out about it unless he does begin by comparing the city to a woman, and ends the book by comparing a woman to the city. Yeah, uh, which is lovely. It's mm -hmm. absolutely heartwarming when he says that about Sybil. Um, so I wonder, maybe did was the intention that when Colon saying a woman brung him low as Colon misinterpreting Vimes' drunken ramblings, talking about the city as a woman. <laughs> That's very plausible, actually. Uh, I, it could be either. Again, because it's a little while since I've since I've read it, I, I can't you know I can't remember like whether that comes across. But, mm -hmm. yeah. No, no, no. I think that makes complete sense. I was thinking about whether he was talking about Angmore Pork, mm -hmm. but it makes it actually makes a lot of sense if it's just <laughs> Colin overheard him talking about how the city is a wasnem, a wasnem, <laughs> a woman. Um, but also, I was kind of confused about something and. I don't feel like this ever got properly explained, or maybe they just decided you don't need to know. But at some stage, it mentions that the watch was being led by a complete drunk and was a bunch of, you know, incompetent people or whatever. And the veterinary had worked very hard over the years to make sure that that's what it was. Yeah. So then you get a sense that veterinary is somehow involved in the inner workings of the watch and how it devolved to the state that it is in at the start of the book. Yeah. And I can't imagine what the motivation behind that would have been, especially when at the end, veterinary says, oh, but he needs Vimes, and he needs Vimes' view of the world. So I kind of didn't understand the motivation behind Veterinary at any stage, whether he interfered to bring the watch to where they were, or why by the end he suddenly needed Vimes. Although, I mean, that is he says that after the encounter in the cell. Yeah. So it's possible that he reconsiders Vimes after that. Yeah, yeah, and I think he reconsiders the gills and things after seeing how they react to the dragon and how like none of them really do anything to stop it. Yeah. Um, not that the watch trying to stop it is all that effective, but you know at least they try. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think like in the same way that like he he got the system of the the gills and you know got it working, mm. and that just took away from the need for the watch. And oh, this is just my taking it, but I see him ensuring the watch stayed unsuccessful and pathetic was less like actively than more kind of you know a uh, sort of determined neglect. Like, you know, he probably didn't do much to, say, up their pay or make it attractive for any new people to join. So it just kind of continued to dwindle. Yeah. Done rather than active sabotage because he had found a system that worked with all the guilds policing each other and policing themselves. And then the whole dragon situation. Sorry. 
while he seems to take that in his stride, you know, probably does lead him to reconsider how the city works to a certain degree. Um, and as you say, he gets to know Vimes a bit better. And like in the same way that he says at the end about, you know, he basically admits that he knows they didn't do really do much to stop the dragon, but the city needs heroes. Yeah. So it's almost like they're, they're the only, as pathetic as they are, they're the only real candidates for heroes because they're the only ones who tried. <laughs> so he's always going to need someone like that, you know, someone who tries and I suppose shows the better nature of people to the like more pork citizens and like maybe gives some hope that they'll emulate that in some way. That makes um, sense. Because this presents like, I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, a really bleak view of people. You know that speech that Nari gives, where he's like, "Oh, there are people down there who worship any king, or you know, like uh, feed anyone to any dragon." And it doesn't do a whole lot to prove that wrong. Like, kind of in the face of that, you've got the Watch and Sybil, and you've got the sense that maybe. Veterinary doesn't know them quite as well as he thinks he knows them. Like, like the, I mean, it's it's almost like a joke at the end, but it's really kind of life affirming the dartboard thing yeah. that he thinks they're going to ask for something much bigger, and it completely <laughs> like uh, I suppose throws his expectations off that they're so humble and like kind of a good deed is on reward sort of thing that they uh-huh. they just ask for the dartboard. Yeah, because uh, essentially they were doing their job, yeah. which is of course beyond his comprehension at a stage where somebody says, well. You're now entitled to ask for a reward. Yeah. And they say, well, Errol et our kettle. And it costs $2. <laughs> I love, actually, I love two things about that scene. I love Nobby trying to pull Colin down and saying, I knew the dartboard was too much. <laughs> I knew yeah. we were pushing our luck with the dartboard. <laughs> and I love Vimes actually drops his, I think it's his helmet, he drops his helmet, he's shaking in fits of laughter. <laughs> And all the reactions to this, and poor Nobby thinking that he's overstepped the bounds, asking for a dartboard yeah. for the yard. I love that scene so much. It was one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, book. and yeah, it's I'm just thinking about it now. I think it, it is really great that, like, it essentially it, it is so. Um, I suppose life affirming and kind of countering, uh, or at least like equalizing the really pessimistic view of people that veterinary gives, and it comes in the form of a joke. You know, like. Oh, and then what seems just like a really silly joke, like a you know, just a kind of like it, like a yeah, just almost, almost a throwaway type thing, and yet like it, it actually is speaks so much to the kind of uh, view of humanity in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, he kind of uh, affirms that later as well when he's talking to Vimes, and he gives this big monologue mm-hmm. about how Vimes thinks that there's the good people and the bad people, but there's not. There's only the bad people. Yeah. There's only the bad people in the world, and then there's people like you that are trying to survive it and trying to find the good in people. It's a really long monologue, and then he just sort of changes the subject really, really abruptly. Yeah, yeah. So Vimes luckily, asks him how he got how he goes on in life if he thinks <laughs> that, and he just he doesn't really answer. Oh yeah, that's um, it. <laughs> he just walks away or something. Yeah, there are times when, uh, <laughs> well, early on you kind of get to know him better, but you like wonder, like whether veterinary's just a kind of like. On, on the verge of utter lunacy, that particularly Prachetian kind of like, so he, he went through insanity and came out the other side and has this kind of dangerous ultra sanity. Um, yes, oh, yeah. definitely one of those. And uh, like, I mean, as they go on, he sort of becomes established as this uneasy ally of the watch, and actually, a lot of the plots begin to revolve around trying to displace him in some way, and the watch trying to stop that because. You know, whatever else he is, he represents this status quo and some kind of safety for the people of Ankh-Morpork rather than the, you know, potentially tyrannical king or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, like, if you're, you know, if you've read Guards Guards or reading any of the others, would you sort of, and 
then you hear there's another watchbook coming out. Would you have it in your head that, like, you know, somewhere down the line there's going to be a watchbook where Veterinary goes over the edge and, like, he's the villain? Because he really does, you know, just seem like, like yeah, poised on the edge of that, you know, you stare long enough at the abyss and the abyss stares back. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the abyss blinked before he did, but. That's a pretty good analogy, actually. I, I can't imagine how you would deal with Veterinary as a villain, though. I feel like that would just be the end of the book. Like, Veterinary turns to the dark side and, well, that's it, everybody go home, pack your bags, <laughs> yeah. we're out of here. We are not prepared to deal with this situation. Oh, I, I feel like like Veterinary and Carrot could have a kind of Lex Luthor Superman sort of... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I was like thinking Vimes versus Veterinary and it just doesn't work, but Carrot versus Veterinary... Well, Vimes would probably be more like Batman in that situation. <laughs> the Soiled Knight. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I know. I feel like it's impossible now, and particularly like by the end of the, by the end of the books, he's you know almost like superhuman. Um, like like making money, I think plays off uh, is off on that a lot. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like it would have been possible like early enough, on, you know, early on. Yeah. Um, maybe this is just really in really speculative territory, but maybe like after Men at Arms, uh, because Feet of Clay, you have the thing where he's getting poisoned and it you find out that he he always knew how he is getting poisoned and like you know probably yeah by that stage it's like yeah no one would like no one could could kind of out, out tinker you know whatever out fox this guy mm-hmm. but um men at arms he's still sort of uh you know is kind of like chillingly implacable so often but he sort of shows things of vulnerability when he gets shot and you know um tries to pass it off as a flesh wound and then you know collapses and I know you could you could maybe have that like push him over the edge or push him kind of towards like martial law or something like that and you know I'd run with it from there um, mm-hmm. if there's any fan fiction writers <laughs> listening I'm not going to write this so you should mm-hmm. um, on the subject of Vimes actually uh, like Carrot it's interesting that he does he changes a lot as well and it's kind of impressive that Pratchett still makes him compelling because I, I sort of realised reading this that there is so much joy to be gotten out of seeing him rise up from the gutter from like utter you know from absolute rock bottom to become to becoming this uh, you know this like competent principled uh, policeman mm-hmm. and and you know you get you see get it a bit more as it goes on like in, in uh, Men at Arms and in Feet of Clay and things you have him uh you have him sort of getting used to his role in high society with with Sybil, and then like uh, as the, um, him coping with the new recruits. But there's probably a certain point where he's kind of you know reached reached the top, like like socially uh, in in his family life, having you know happy wife and kids, and that like it's, it makes clear like he's really well respected by you know the rest of the watch. And it's uh, thinking about this now, it'll make the later ones even more interesting to look at and how that still manages to be compelling even though there is so much um, joy and so much of the, the appeal of him in like I feel like in the certainly in this book is that he's such an underdog and so, such kind of like self-made underdog as well but you know guy worn beaten down by society and kind of beating his way back up essentially mm-hmm. um, you know when he beat his way back to the top it would seem like there'd be no more obstacles for him to conquer but they, they still get books out of it or Paul Pratt still gets books out of it yeah I know we'll cover this more at the, when we get there but I feel like when he rises and rises and rises and rises and, and he just keeps succeeding 
I feel like he just turns into his own obstacle then. Yeah. Because like every slight promotion he gets and everything that goes well for him, he seems really uncomfortable with mm-hmm. and and really unhappy. To <laughs> and at, at one stage, I think he's just really unhappy that um, that he's done something successful and been rewarded for it. You know, he wants to wear his old uniform and he has to put on a fancy uniform and it's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, so yeah. He actually really struggles with that. Maybe that's how Pratchett actually does it. Yeah, Nightwatch, um, yeah, really shows that. I've, I've heard a lot of people argue that, like, Nightwatch is the the kind of natural end of the Vimes arc um, and, like, the, what follows is sort of superfluous. But I really like Toad, so, um, you know, I, I, I think that's a kind of it's an interesting argument, but. I'm still pretty happy I got towed out of it. Yeah. Uh, although I, I, I've read a lot of people who don't, so again, that'll be an interesting one to revisit later down the line. But staying on Vimes in this book, mm. do you think as as heartening and kind of compelling as it is to read him sort of uh, rise to this level of competence and, you know, uh, principles, that his transition from, like, utter alcoholic apathy to... You know, someone interested in the case who's actually quite a decent copper is a little too abrupt, or do you think it's you know it's, it's handled well enough? I thought it was handled well enough. I mean, you kind of see, you can kind of follow throughout the story when when the cogs in his brain start turning. Mm-hmm. You can see him pick up a couple of hints, and you can see him sort of like right away when he sees the footprints, the claw prints rather, out of the alley. And doesn't see them going in. You can see that he's, yeah. he's saying these are too big to be a waiting bird. That's not true, and they're only going one way. Like straight away, there actually is a police part of his brain that starts figuring this out, and then it kind of, I guess, goes to sleep for a while, or it just doesn't think about it for a mm-hmm. while. And then the next thing you know, he sees the dragon, and it's like, well, how is it holding itself up? How is that's mm-hmm. that's not naturally right? And and then that goes to rest for a while, and then something else crops up, and it's through a series of him encountering problems and things that shouldn't be that are yeah and eventually he kind of comes to his own conclusions and he figures stuff out and <laughs> he makes the librarian and uh, well he lets the librarian be an honorary watchman and everything <laughs> and that plays his part as well but no i thought it was i thought it was very well done now maybe him coming out of his alcoholic stupor and being a sober person properly sober policeman for the first time in god knows how long maybe that was a bit it wasn't dwelled on a lot. It was just a matter of fact. Okay, now he stopped drinking, so I guess it wasn't really a problem because he doesn't seem to be suffering too much for it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like like that that kind of uh, seems a little more realistic or a little less abrupt when you take it in conjunction with the other books. Like I, I, I can't remember whether it happens in Men in Arms, but I know in Feet of Clay you really get the sense like he's constantly on the verge of you know taking a drink and you know you get that kind of uh, like. This convincing sense of alcoholism about him that you know he has used alcohol as a crutch for so long, and um, he really has to bite back from just taking a drink when he's you know stressed or or whatever. But within this book, yeah, the, the changes uh, like you know he does seem to pull himself out of it a little too easily for something that like you know obviously is kind of like an absolutely horrendous addiction in in reality. Actually, what I think sort of hurts it is that um, it's not until halfway through the book that you get an actual Vimes carrot conversation. And I feel like, like it's, it's very easy to infer and like, it would have been quite easy to do that. Like what suddenly makes this difference is carrot sort of naive, you know, optimism and outlook on life. And that like, even though Vimes would be skeptical of that, it would in some way kind of inspire him or almost like, shame him into trying to 
be that good. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, even his, his initial steps to uh, investigate the dragon, as you said, they're quite halting and it's quite convincing in that way. Like, he doesn't suddenly become like a super, you know, watchman. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember thinking that, like, his his sort of determination that he's not going to let this case rest seems a little um, like obviously this particular case is such a strange one you know it's not one that he would have to be dealing with but I remember thinking it seems a little sort of how to put it uh, a little unconvincing in that uh, like I feel like if he's gotten to like he, he's he's written as being so apathetic and so skeptical that you're I, I didn't get the sense that like this would be enough to make him you know determined to pursue it like this idea of I can't remember what it like oh they're these people are born in my city and no one knows and no one cares like that late the later volumes yeah i could absolutely see him doing it but at the kind of at the low he's at i feel like you need something more to get convinced that this would be something that he sticks at and doesn't just you know give up and go back to the bottle after like you know a week without throwing up a new lead on it and i feel like the like it had had him and carrot had a you know an an on-page encounter earlier in the book and Carrot's kind of playing at the back of his mind the whole time like he's thinking you know uh, in the same way that in Nightwatch he sort of principles himself by constantly like thinking about what young Sam would think and you know he almost has to set an example to his younger self mm-hmm. like if, if Carrot sort of played that role here um, early on it would it would sort of make it convincing that there is some actual tangible spore to his, his lift from the gutter Whereas it happens, it just kind of feels like, you know, this is the moment he's doing it because the plot starts. Yeah, that's a fair point. Mm. And I can't quite remember any particular motivation for it either. Like, as I say, he figures out, so there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. But nothing nothing that would be quite enough to really provoke him. Let's do a proper investigation. Let's do this thing right. I'll put down the bottle. We'll sort this out. Yeah. I can't even think about a particular point in the book where where that even happens. Like it's it's kind of gradual, I guess maybe. I know. I can't I feel, feel very um, been adequately prepared saying this, but I know when they initially take veterinary and show him like the marks on the wall after someone gets born. There's something about that. Like there's something like like veterinary. Um, it's something about like pe- people dying and no one no one even acknowledging there was a death. But I, like the the idea of like I can understand his anger when Vetinari uh, writes it off as a waiting board, mm-hmm. which is actually that whole thing is a really nice. Um, see, there's so many detective uh, films and film noirs that are played on here, but that's like a whole like that's basically a whole Jaws reference. The <laughs> idea that he's like Chief Brody warning the people about the shark and they're writing it off. But in any case, the um, I feel like like there's probably in this like long slow decline of the watch we've discussed there's probably been plenty of moments where veterinary has just brushed off his um you know him trying to uh make it uh, get across the importance of a case mm-hmm. so like i don't feel like that is enough to make him think well i'm gonna show you <laughs> like like it is later when he gets a bit more self-confidence but at that moment i'm like that that's probably happened a lot of time you know you really get the sense that the way veterinary treats them and the way they act around him that they're not used to him taking the them very seriously so why would he get angry at veterinary not taking him seriously if he's been accepting it for so long you know that's true although now that I think about it Carrot is around then yeah because Carrot is about to arrest veterinary oh for his first coach yeah that's that's brilliant (laughs) so I think I'd have to check whereabouts this happens but 
it's a, it's around about the time where Carrot is getting into a big brawl at the mended drum, and Vimes makes the decision. Oh well, you know he's probably fine. Yeah. And then they're like, "Do you think he's winning? Well, I better go check on him." <laughs> like maybe even that is enough because then all of a sudden, yes, then all of a sudden he has to. Uh, he tells Nobby to do something. It's like uh, give him a warning or something. Or let them off with a warning, whatever way he phrases it. It's like, oh, I don't really know how to do that. <laughs> I'm not sure I've done that before. I'm not sure I've done that in a while. So even then, he is starting to police a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, it feels like they're sort of like baby steps, you know, and then he takes this giant leap. But yeah, no, this, fair, this has been, you know, it's been very pedantic. Like, obviously, he develops, uh, Vimes develops really kind of, I, I think largely convincingly and compellingly as a character over the whole series, but I just feel like there's, there's just a little, you know, a little bit of a leap in in this from, again, from being at utter rock bottom to suddenly having the determination to, you know, go through with this uh, dangerous investigation when he's probably, you, you really get the sense that he's kind of like turned a blind eye to so much stuff over the course of the watch declining. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you were saying before we start recording about the, how much you love the scene when they're trying to work at uh, ensuring what's it called it's got a million to one odds to hit the dragon yes I it was one of my favourite scenes it might, I, it's actually my favourite scene in the whole book and it's mainly for that particular punchline mm-hmm. but it's the scene where Fred Colin who was apparently a great archer in his day and he's got a lucky arrow and everything's going to be fine because they figured out the, the dragon I think Carrot's uncle, somebody's uncle has told them, has always said that there's going to be a vulnerable spot, a vulnerable spot, <laughs> and if you hit it just right, I mean, there's your Hobbit reference, there's your... Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you got to hit it right in the vulnerable spot, and that'll do it, that'll kill it. And Colin's got a lucky arrow, there's a vulnerable spot, and it's a million to one odds. And you know what? A million to one odds happen every time. As soon as everything's a million to one, that's when it's going to happen. But in this particular scene, they've said it's a million to one odds, and they've had a big discussion about how a million to one odds crop up every time. I think perhaps at some stage later it's going to say it's one once out of ten times. But here they're convinced. A million to one odds means it's going to happen. But then they start thinking, well, but maybe it's not a million to one. I mean, if we've got a lucky arrow, and depending on how big the vulnerable spot is... Maybe it's not a million to one. Maybe it's maybe it's a hundred to one. Oh, sure, you know, it could even be a certainty. Well, you know, that won't work. I mean, even saying it, it's a certainty, but it just might work. <laughs> Obviously, that doesn't work. So they have this conversation, and the punchline at the end is, is Nobby just sort of very seriously saying, we'll have to adjust the odds. <laughs> and then they start weighing up the odds and calculating how exactly the best way to get this certainty, the sure thing, or this 100 to 1 odds to a million to 1, having him hop on one leg, putting a handkerchief over his eyes putting something in his pocket, putting something in his mouth <laughs> it's just this bizarre, this absolutely bizarre exchange, and it's such a great, it's such a great knobby line, and as I was saying before a vastly underappreciated knobby yeah. in the past knobby in the book's actually <laughs> very very funny, and I just had not paid enough attention to him in the past but it's this great knobby and colon exchange, and it's this great and then the, then the shot doesn't work. <laughs> then they <laughs> shoot it. And it just pure doesn't work. It, uh, it it struck me, looking back on it, that as well, like that whole obsession over the million to one odds and there's certainty that like if you get a million to one odds, you'll definitely hit it. Yeah. Kind of uh, like 
is one of one of a, a few bits in this book where they really play off narrative convention like that <laughs> you have those really funny discussions with the the elucidated brethren about uh what is it a scion showing up he used to be a swineherd and he kills the dragon and he's going to get it and how they're just so certain that this happens and this is how it works because it happens in stories yeah and then that's that's true as well like when you know when they seem to stage the hero slaying the dragon the whole city just does they like instantly overthrow veterinarian except just <laughs> utter stranger as king because you know that's that's just how things work um and it, like it I, I think in that way like it really foreshadows a lot of the sort of narratology and power of stories pratchett would use like a lot later like you see the power of belief obviously is really big in, in hogfather and which is abroad is probably the one where he most directly plays off the idea of story convention and you know how, how it works and mm-hmm. yeah i think this might be the, like, the, certainly the most prominent and direct example of it so far in the series yeah like this idea of stories being a force unto themselves um although with the million to one well who knows maybe they they just miscalculated the odds but that certainly doesn't work it's going on this <laughs> little dragon we, we were talking before again about how I, I don't know how you would be sure about the odds being a million to one i don't know I don't know how bookies do this. I don't know how they, they you know, to decide. Um, you know, you see these really exact odds, like, uh, you know, you'll, you'll, like, you'll have your kind of bottom of the range and top of the range stuff. It'll be like, oh, you know, uh, whatever, like Leicester City were a hundred to one to win the Premier to win the Premier League before the season started, um, which I don't even know place that bet by now is probably rubbing their hands in glee. But you know, whatever, like, you know. Chelsea are like four to five on and then you get these really odd ones in the middle where it's like oh spores are seven to three and they're like, like how do they how do they it seems so arbitrary like it just seems kind of like oh well you know they're not really certain but kind of so like what what divides the the seven to threes and the you know kind of like eight to fives and so on I, I don't know I'm not a mathematician guys I'm not don't expect me to know this <laughs> But can I just add that um, now I'm not sure how exact this was, but they were calculating the odds by the chances of a man with soot on his face, his tongue sticking out, standing on one leg and singing the hedgehog song, ever hitting a dragon's vulnerable would be what do you say, carrot? Oh, man, into one, I reckon. <laughs> so, so that's where they got it from. Yeah, pretty long odds. I'll have to remember. I'll try to recreate all those circumstances the next time I'm playing darts. <laughs> See how it goes. That's a good idea. Oh, it's well. The thing is, I think what's happened here is they've actually put too much work into it. Like, it has to be naturally a yeah, million to one yeah. These are very cultivated million to one That's not. true. That's just trying to stiff the bookmaker. <laughs> um, what did you think of the villains? Or villain, I suppose. Um. I thought it was fine. It's, <laughs> I say fine. Um, it's not like he was a big, bad, terrible villain like you're going to see a lot of in, in the later books. It's just this guy who was a bit ambitious and doesn't like working for the patrician and has mm-hmm. come up with a scenario to get his boss out of the way. I mean, it's a very... Is pedestrian the right word? It's a, it's a very used kind of plotline. Yeah, well, he follows on from, like, Trimon, Dios, and uh, even the, the, the Abraham in um, Sorcery as, like, the second-in-command type mm-hmm. figure being uh, being really dangerous and lusting for power. That's, that's and fair being enough, close yeah. enough to the source of power to cause real trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah. He certainly like he. I suppose he lacks a bit. Of, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, like Edward Death in Men's Arms, like the, yeah. the bit with him at the start where he gets 
really obsesses over royalty and you know it relates to his own kind of like uh, falling on hard times and the dragon king of arms and people like that and mm-hmm. you know, I suppose you've got someone like Carcer and Nightwatch who uh, isn't you know isn't really very nuanced but it's just really compelling for his for his insanity once is a bit more run of the mill yes. um, yeah and, and but the book almost kind of acknowledges it in that like he gets it way so way in over his head like I I the, love how unsettling it is when he brings them to he brings the guild leaders to see the dragon and it's just trying to put up this pretense of normality that you know oh the dragon's king and this is fine and we're going to go on as things are and he uh i think it's is it like the head of the assassins um is just really put off by you know how he's kind of he's acting normal but he's just barely clinging onto the fringes of sanity and or does it? He, he grabs him on the way out, and Mouds help me, and the assassin's thinking, "Well, there's only one kind of help he gives, and what kind of person would ask for that?" Yeah, um, I, yeah, like I really like that. And then at the end, you have like it's made very clear that he's sort of really no threat to veterinary, and veterinary's you know been really been kind of run rings around him from the start without him even realizing the race had started. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I feel like in that way, there's two things that I like about once. Um, one of them is. The decline, like the dragon, the dragon arrives, and then all of a sudden he is just a slave to the dragon, and yeah. it's terrible. And he's, he can feel the dragon in his head, and his it's just a terrible end for him. Like before the the watch anywhere gets anywhere near him, or before veterinary gets out of his dungeon or anything, he's he's just doomed. He's gone. Mm-hmm. The dragon has shown up. The dragon is in his head, and he can no longer like do anything of his own free will. He's kind of at the beck and call of a much worse creature yeah, yeah. he has to bring in these assassins and, oh, not these assassins but he has to bring in these guild leaders and have a word with them about you know um, sacrificial virgins and but you know it's it's for the greater good mm-hmm. it's only once a monster it's grand really and the second thing I like was that it allowed Vimes to get a really good solve in like I actually really like the way the moment where Vimes recalls all of a sudden one saying oh any of them get out when when the house burned down, the house of the oh, elucidated yeah, yeah. brethren, once had replied, "Any any of them get, get out?" Vimes questioned it, and then once was like, "Oh, you uh, said it was a house. I'm sure there was people in there. Did any oh. of them get out?" And then Vimes rec- recalls it. Then it goes back to see him, and then he reveals that that's how he figured it out. Yeah, and Vimes, he gets him to run, doesn't he? He recognizes his run from yes. when he, he knew him from when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it's a big shoes to fill moment. I like to call it from. You know that um, the Simpson, the first sideshow Bob Simpsons episode when he's framed Krusty and he has Bart on his show, and he goes, "We all have big shoes to fill," and then you get this like you know, big shoes, big shoes to fill, yeah, and you see Bart kind of all the dominoes falling yeah. into place in his head, and like whenever, whenever anyone gets that moment, that you know, one chance remark or happening that sets off like the uh, course of deduction in their head, that's just what I think of, you know, yeah. A light bulb moment is a big shoes to fill moment for me. I like it. That makes complete sense. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, it, it did strike me with uh, the elucidated brethren that I don't. I I doubt this was intentional. Um, but uh, if anyone knows otherwise, please correct me. But they sort of parallel like a men's rights organization. Um, <laughs> like they're all they're all men. <laughs> and they meet up in, you know, uh, to chiefly, I don't think exclusively, but chiefly the people they complain about oppressing them are women. Mm-hmm. Um, but they see this as much more like a societal thing than just, you know, like 
whatever isolated incidents of you know women uh, um whatever like you know them kind of falling out with women or not getting on with women um in the same way that like men's rights guys would see you know, political correctness gone mad and just like you know feminist agenda it's like Feminazis. like just yeah it's just like you know society kind of making things bad uh, as bad for them they have these sort of trappings of being really important and mysterious but you know are actually just a bunch of run-of-the-mill twerps <laughs> like in the same way that like um uh you know you you'll have these like men's rights guys adapting like really sort of um ostentatious kind of juvenile uh, would be cool sounding like usernames on their boards and you know coming up with all this like all this terminology and what was someone like they recently had a meeting in NASIC who return of kings like you know these self aggrandizing oh. names you know yeah. that sort of parallel this business of them all like appearing in hoods and calling each other brother this and brother that mm-hmm. um, yeah and they sort of just they see it as like um, or like this real social ill that needs correcting and then, ironically, they corrected by summoning a female dragon. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I would. I don't know how intentional that would have been on Terry Pratchett's part. I just checked, and it was 1989, so it would definitely be a serious precursor to this. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah. Like I think it's it's, it's a rel like it's the relatively. You know, I suppose the awareness of it as a movement is relatively new, all right. But it, it's, it's no, you're right. It's big, yeah, it's really, I really enjoyed that like, yeah. Yeah, comparison to them, um, and the idea of them being, uh, you know, I suppose being like used and exploited as well. That like once doesn't really care about their, you know, gripes with society in the same way that uh, I think some people argue. What's his name? Gamergate head honcho is like just sort of. Mm. Uh, you know, isn't all that interested in in, in uh, that kind of stuff, and he's just wants a following. Um, I'll probably I'll probably get my like uh, like an internet mob pursuing me, <laughs> daring to blaspheme against him. But yeah, that's what how and ever. <laughs> yeah, well, one more um, more thing I, I sort of alluded to earlier, and uh, <clears throat> the watch really progresses as the books go on and they get a lot bigger and they get more prestigious and they probably change much more um certainly in a direct way than any other recurring character but do you think like the structure of the watch books changes all that much uh, you know in terms of like is this book where you've got four uh like ill-resourced clueless cops versus say the later books where they're just you know really well organized um law enforcement kind of arm like is is the structure of the the books and you know the the uh adventures they have all that different like the one big difference i know here is that the notion of the the sort of threat to the status quo or veterinary's power base or public safety being something that comes completely from outside of ankh-morpork and being magical as opposed to being something like socio-cultural like um edward death's idea like the, the gun is invented it's, it's kind of it's it's sort of hinted at to be kind of mystical but you know it's it's an invented and edward death puts it into place because again he has this dissatisfaction with society under veterinary and then you have feet of clay you have something similar and jingo plays off the kind of like what jingoism whereas this it's obviously you know you as i was just saying you have the elucidated brethren 
their gripes are kind of rooted in everyday Ankh-Morpork life, but the dragon as a threat is just completely from outside everyone's understanding, you know. Uh, um, but that's that's the only really big difference I notice between, say, the the structure of this or the obstacles to watch face compared to later books when they're much more well-resourced and, uh, you know, much wider cast of characters. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I feel like maybe... I feel like maybe they remain basically fundamentally the same. I mean, you still get the sense of the watch as this fantastic unit of misfits and they just get more and more, mm-hmm. but they're all still more and more misfits and it's they band together and they work really well as a unit. And maybe the threats get a bit more grandiose. Maybe the threats get a bit more, as we said, this, this villain is a kind of a run of the mill kind of a one. Yes, he summons a dragon, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. But he's not the most threatening of villains otherwise. And the dragon is... Fights a, fights another dragon. It turns out to be a courtship ritual. It turns out not to be such a massive threat in the end. It's just they fly away together. So maybe just the threats get worse later. But the threats have to get sort of have to evolve because the watch keeps evolving. Mm-hmm. Well, I think fundamentally it stays the same. But just on a bigger scale maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I might maybe change my mind when we get to a few more of them and I reread them. Yeah, but yeah, that's memory, true. I, was I think thinking the same thing. It was kind of a question in my head that I didn't really have an answer to. But <laughs> I won't know until we until we reread the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, before we go into our to our list making, uh, the only other thought I had on this is that I think it's the first scroll book in about two or three where we don't get a Gormenghast uh, <laughs> reference or, <laughs> or a parody or, <laughs> or anything like that uh, not one that I noticed anyway so no, I no. don't know maybe maybe I missed one there but uh, I still haven't read Gormenghast but I went looking for um, I mentioned I went looking for Guards Guards quotes on Goodreads mm-hmm. and because I looked at Guards Guards on Goodreads I got a recommendation for Gormenghast ah, so okay, Goodreads yeah. agrees with we have a, we have a meta reference to Gormenghast there mm-hmm um, oh, before we go on to list making did you have anything else you wanted to say about the book I had one mm-hmm. it's kind of an odd one um, it's not so much in, it's not so much about the plot of the book but I noticed something about halfway through the book um, Terry Pratchett has landed in a couple of these references he's landed in a reference to I can't remember the context but a reference to Rio and another city that's on earth and he's referenced something about takeaways as well like he's, he says something about oh, something is the kind of thing that you find outside takeaways like late at night. And he's starting to bring in these references, but all of a sudden it feels like, because of the way he sets up the narrative of this book, it feels like you almost understand that it's a writer from this world writing about yeah, the Discworld, yeah. but the Discworld is a separate world that also exists. And like Pratchett keeps saying, the Discworld in Angmore Park is a mirror of every other world that exists. Yeah. So you get the sense of it almost seemed out of place in some of the earlier books that he would reference, you know, Gandalf in a weird way, mm-hmm. and he, it was slightly more sort of off-putting. It would take you out, it would take you out of the story before. Whereas this time I just felt like I understood how the narrative worked, and how the writing worked, and how the worlds are set up. So I kind of felt like this is one of the best written, and one of the ones where Terry Pratchett really hit his stride in that sense. Like, he's obviously tried the same joke a few times, but this is the first time it's really landed, and it kind of goes by almost unnoticed I just happened to catch like Rio hold on let me read that again and then I then I kind of figured out the mirroring system yeah I, I think 
Um, I, I hadn't thought of that at all and, until he said it. But I think maybe what makes it work better is that um, there's something more jarring about hear him writing or referencing fiction or the process of writing in the earlier ones. Like when he references Gandalf or kind of... Um, there is that like joke in Mort that is really funny in isolation but then really jarring where he has... Um, what is it? Like one character says something and the next paragraph is like, what that said? And it's like, oh... Dead isn't actually replying to Kelly. He's this is a writerly technique, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, like and and in that way, like he's sort of talking about the process of he's kind of like almost the narrator is outing himself as a writer, whereas in this, as you say, the narrator is just positioning himself in our world mm-hmm. rather than kind of you know outing himself as a writer of fiction. Uh, and and it's that seems sort of such a silly distinction to make now that I say it because you know we know he is writing fiction, <laughs> but it just yeah it somehow does make them those references less jarring and no, just seem more fitting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's all I had. Okay, okay. Well, we'll now go on to present you with our our micro list of Discworld ephemera before uh, ranking this book in our macro list of the best Discworld books in the world ever that we've read so far in this reread series. Okay, so our list this week um, this week I say as if we do this every week <laughs> the big long gap we have between this this is all a lot of fun. But in any case, since Guards Guards introduces us to the watch and essentially becomes a procedural series where we're just basically it's essentially about people doing their job and their job happens to be policemen in the fantasy city so it's really interesting so we thought we'd look at uh, the top seven Discworld uh, jobs that would make for a good good Discworld book Um, so Rose you want to kick us off? Sure at number seven we would like to see a legal procedural book so I guess we're thinking of the John Grisham of the Terry Pratchett genre. Yeah yeah Mr. what's Mr. Slant the yeah. zombie. Exactly yeah. so the, obviously they're very welcoming to all <laughs> it's a very diverse mm-hmm. kind of legal firm that we're talking about here. Yeah you could have like a nice tie-in with the watch as well like a crime and punishment type um element to it I feel like the, the punishment bits in Angmore Park judging by how veterinary treats mimes <laughs> would be very uh, oh God, yeah. inventive you know mm-hmm. um, number six would be uh, a book about the seamstresses guild um, you know uh, like the erotica boom seems to have died down a bit <laughs> after the heyday of Fifty Shades of Grey but there's, there's still you know there's still the demand for it there mm-hmm. and um, that would probably fill it amply and be really funny as well mm-hmm. uh, number five Number five would be a... So we're talking about Moist von Litvig-esque setting up the postal system, setting up the banking system, setting up the clack system, setting up the public education system in Ankh-Morpork. Currently, everybody there seems to be getting educated in guilds, and they're getting educated only in whatever that guild specialises in. So this would be just a broader educational system for people that aren't particularly joining any specific guild. They're not dead set on being assassins, so... Yeah, they're creeped out by the clowns guild. <laughs> they're they're doing a bit too well for the beggars guild. Public school for these people. And he done a Pratchett done a really good job of like kind of I suppose like you know uh, teacher school humor with uh, Mr. Savaloy in interesting times. Yeah. So that you know seeing seeing a book with like more of that kind of stuff would be pretty pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of schools, 
in sorcery, Rincewind uh, and Cohen speculate a school for Grand Viziers where they learn how to be so treacherous and scheming and evil. And if such a school exists, that would be our number four. <laughs> Something set there in like, uh, you know, the Academy of Grand Viziering and general evil plotting, I think, <laughs> would make for a pretty lively tale. Uh, maybe hard to find sympathetic characters there, but, um, you know, I, I, I'd read it. Uh, number three? Number three would be a novel following whoever is unfortunate enough to work in the architectural firm run by bloody stupid Johnson. <laughs> I, I just... I want to see him as a boss character and the poor people that have to follow out his demands and, and the creations that he ends up coming out with. Yeah, I want to read that book. Yeah, it would be a lot of fun. Um, number two uh, would be one set in the Igor Academy. Um, like they're they're assembled and then they're sent out to various mad scientists. And what I want to know is whether they even get a say in the mad scientists to get sent out to. Do they say, "Oh, I don't want to go with that guy. He's going to raise the dead. I want to go with the bloke who's going to block out the sun instead." <laughs> um, what what kind of training do you have to prepare you for that kind of work? You know, how long uh, does it take to get that lisp? Yeah, might might get a bit difficult to distinguish between characters, <laughs> but. I feel were Terry alive today, he would be up to the task of, of finding a way. <laughs> Igor said to Igor. And number one is a novel set in the Assassin's Guild. We've seen it in bits and pieces, but an entire novel set in the Assassin's Guild showing what the guys learn, how they learn it, them going into the world, the teaching that goes into... <laughs> The trouble people who are in the Assassin's Guild can get into. Uh, they're trying to fool the teachers, the teachers being assassins themselves probably aren't mm -hmm. easy to fool. Well, basically I want to see assassin-based mischief. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like, again, it's the stuff we've seen is tantalising enough that you want to see more. Like, you've got Tepic being in the position of an assassin who doesn't really want to be an assassin or kill anyone. Mm -hmm. And um, that never gets pushed to uh, to the extent that it could because he goes back to Jelly Baby and it's, you know, about him uh, ruling the kingdom and trying to change the kingdom and so forth. And you have um, 20, 24, was it 20? I'm getting the hours wrong. Is it 20 something hour, Ahmed? Oh, God. 28, is it? No. 27, I can't remember. Oh, no, wait, no, it's... Oh, anyway. Ahmed <laughs> saying saying about like how he could survive anything after surviving through the kind of like posh contempt and bullying of the uh, Assassin's Guild mm -hmm. and you were kind of veterinary um, yeah, playing tricks on Downey in Nightwatch and like all of that kind of stuff is you know it feels like there's there's fair talk around there for a uh, for a book to just be you know set entirely entirely in it or well almost entirely in it obviously in wider and more work as well mm -hmm. um, and that top seven brings us to our list of the best Discworld books ever that we've read so far in this reread series, which currently stands at seven, but will now stand at eight when we add guards, guards in there. So I'm looking at, we've got the list of now to jog our memory as much as anything else. And Rose, where do you think of this one falls? Now, I did love pyramids. You know I love pyramids. I love guards, guards more. Really? Yes. What do you think? I, I don't I don't think it's as good as pyramids. Okay. Um, 
I think I think as time goes, like Pyramids is their number one at the moment, and I think it will probably be displaced. And I wouldn't be surprised if it is a guards book that displaces it, but I don't think this is the one just yet. I think like um, there's a lot that brings Pyramids above it. Like I think Dios is a much better villain than Lupin once is. Yeah. I think the kind of like the slightly jarring things, like the um, you know uh, Vimes maybe his sort of transformation from apathetic alcoholic to principal copper. It comes a bit more abruptly than any of the character development in Pyramids. I feel like as for as much as like the uh, while the the film riffs in Guards Guards are great and the the kind of uh, narrative convention stuff and uh, like even the, the outlook on humans thing. Like I feel like the what Pyramids does conceptually is way out of it. You know, um, with the, the notion of time and culture and religion and so much else. Um, and I also feel like, I mean, this is might be being unfair in Guards Guards as well, but I feel like like a lot of, it's it's impossible for me to read Guards Guards without the knowledge of what's going to come. Hmm. So I feel like that almost gives a disadvantage that because I already know these characters so well. And, you know, um, like I think we we're ta- I was talking about earlier when I said like a lot of the moments characters in this book, I, you know, kind of just, I associated with, all of Carrot, even though they're very particular to him in, in this book, there's a lot of that sort of stuff where, you know, my opinion of the characters in this book and my kind of, like, enjoyment of them is also driven by my memory of reading about them in other books and you don't get that in Pyramids because it's entirely standalone and, I, like, I feel like the fact that it can kind of uh, supposed to be so compelling and enthralling and so on, without the advantage of, like, you know, that you'd say see would later read three more tepic books uh, and you know get really get really used to them and so on mm-hmm. uh really says a lot to its quality um well in fact I'm, I'm 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 sure like i'm i'm thinking maybe maybe i wouldn't go but more heater i think where where more falls down as you talked about more number two more falls down on that sort of day say machina abrupt ending but again otherwise feels like um i know more more conceptually stronger um, like I know Guards Guards feels like a really great introduction to the Watch series but like just creating it as its own book I'm not sure if it's as strong as Mortar Pyramids I mean there's there's a lot about it I love but I mean this is um like you know we're we're seven books in already and it's 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 gonna get better in a lot of ways and it's already hard and it already feels harsh to kind of you know like talk about putting feeling like you're putting things too low but you know when the stuff above them is lower quality it's like uh you know it's um isn't it isn't a really bad indictment on it to be to be ranking it below certain things mm-hmm. but yeah yeah this is um now i would grant you pyramids mm-hmm. but i would definitely put it above mort um it's i think it's my favorite so far but that's that's on a personal yeah. level that's that's not being objective or anything but what impressed me about guards guards and i was actually comparing it to mort when doing this is when we read mort i felt like mort was quite a good book mm-hmm. and it was quite a good death book but you just know that there's such great death books coming around the corner that i kind of wanted to put mort quite high because i love death so much yeah and yet a lot of that was coming from the future death books and not mort itself whereas in this case i've had the opposite reaction where I actually love the guards immediately and I, I know why I love them right now and I know how much I'm going to love them in the future but it it's not like 
my love of the guards in this book is informed by the books going forward. It's actually I've appreciated this book with all of its characters as kind of just separate and as the very first book. I was kind of able to separate them a bit more. So I thought it was slightly better done than Mort in that sense. Um, I put I could put it below pyramids because honestly, now that you've said it, it feels like we can find more to criticize in guards guards than there was in pyramids. Yeah, like that there are flaws there that I wasn't really thinking about. Mainly, be- <laughs> mainly because the humor in it is so good. Um, yeah, I also feel like I don't know whether it's um, a, a hindrance to guards guards or. Uh, or whether it's a kind of accurate criticism that because there is more watch books mm. and you know they do get well you know not all like I, I don't know I'd say I'd say this is the worst watch book or anything so you know that's something for way down the line but a lot of them do get better um, that I don't know whether that makes me feel more reluctant to play Scarlet Scarlet really highly because I know this you know or because I, I know there's going to be watch books down the line they're going to be figuring in the you know whatever the top five or so uh, you know even when this list is spanning into the 30s or 40s mm-hmm. or whether that's fair enough because I'm looking at it and think like I I know there's more that can be done with these these characters in these setting and more is done whereas um, I mean in our in our mini list last week I, I said expressed interest in seeing like a novella about a novella prequel about Dios but like otherwise I, I don't feel like there's like Pyramids is so self-contained like you know anything that he wants to do and that is done in that book and you know there's kind of no sense that like it you know needs a sequel or could be done better or anything like that mm-hmm. um i'm trying to figure out whether that's the case with mort as well i mean with mort it's he certainly pratchett certainly seemed to think he, he uh there's like unfinished ground there because he goes back to death and not only the app but goes back to the death goes missing death goes on a holiday mm-hmm. um type thing so like i don't know I'm, I'm I'm trying to weigh that against guards guards and like you know, um, oh yeah, I suppose we'll split the difference. We put a number two then ahead of Mort behind pyramids. I think yeah, so. we could be here all night otherwise. <laughs> um, uh, I, I might also be because it's the first one that's properly set in Ankhmore Pork and it's just got this fantastic setting and these great characters that I love so much and it's got dragons. I'm very biased against anything that's got <laughs> okay. dragons in it, <laughs> but I would put it above Mort. Steve Steve Hill's gonna be gonna be pretty annoyed with you. I know, I know. Um, yeah, well, you've faced this rat in the past and <laughs> come out unscathed, so I'm sure you will do so again. Um, we probably won't have this big a problem next time. No. Yeah, Eric no. is next, and um, uh, I'm gonna be curious to read Eric again. I've only ever read it once before, but I I don't think it will figure too heavily at the business end of the list. But who knows? We may well be surprised. Um, and you may well be listener and hopefully whether you are or not it will be relatively soon (laughs) (laughs) a lot sooner than when we were bidding you goodbye at the end of Pyramids but uh, thanks again for listening and goodbye bye